Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So, my original idea was called the Great Democracy Suggestion Box, and that's still basically how I think of this conversation. It went in some directions that I wasn't expecting, but I was very happy to have it go in. But the whole question is, if things aren't working right now, if our democracy isn't what it should be, how do you make it better? So uh, we had a long conversation. You're going to hear an edited version of that conversation here. If you want the full uncut version, that will go up on the page that we're doing for this show at wnpr.org slash Colin. So here's who are on stage with me. Bill Curry, of course, Bill Curry, Democratic political analyst, White House counselor to the Clinton administration. Suzanne Bates, policy director at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. She would be our conservative voice. And uh, Bilal Siku, uh, associate professor of political science at the University of Hartford. It's a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed having it. The original plan was to be was to talk an awful lot about structural changes. But as we began our pre-discussion, Bill kind of convinced me that we needed to have a different conversation first. And Bill almost never convinces me of anything he wants to do. But so this is a hallmark moment all by itself. But I think your argument is powerful that we can't talk about making changes until we talk about becoming people who can discuss and agree upon changes. So take it away. Everybody has structural reforms they want to propose. Uh, get rid of the Electoral College, uh, do ranked voting, uh, uh, get rid of partisan uh, uh, gerrymandering of the districts, uh, get rid of money in politics. Uh, there are all kinds of things about this system that are so obviously broken, so obviously need to be fixed. And the only problem is you have to win first. You have to win under the old rules. Because we can't fix anything. We, more progressive reformist types, um, uh, we, don't get, we don't get to fix until we get to govern. And so we have to fix the things we can fix now. So what part of the problem can we fix? Is it possible in this degraded, rigged, corrupted democracy, and it is all those things, in dying right before our eyes, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it, uh, can we still win? And the good news is it ain't dead yet and that there are things that we can do. And it begins with how do we reconstitute a political debate in this country, a substantive, effective, relevant political discourse in America. And it made me stop and think about a couple of things, one of which is education. And among the structural reforms that I would really push for are education reform. And I've never been a fan of the corporate-driven edu education reforms in, with which the country has wasted precious time for the last 25 years. No child left behind, race to the top. I've disliked all of it. And for a couple of reasons, I just want to explain two of them to you. One of them is that the very premise of it is mistaken. The very premise of all those reforms, and they're all Obama's reforms and, and Bush's reforms are you know, fraternal twins anyway. They're premised on the idea that America is in trouble because our people aren't good workers and that they need to emphasize STEM skills, and they need to become more globally competitive or America will be in trouble, that this is a problem in our economy of our non-competitive workers. 
And the truth is that we're actually very good workers. We're terrible citizens. We're good workers. We're awful citizens. By most of the indicia of work, we, we do okay. And by most of the uh, indicia of citizenship, we do horribly. Voter turnout, there are a million different things about it. And so to begin with, in terms of education reform, and uh, a friend of mine, Charlotte Costco, said to me on the phone about this today, that you know, the education reform affects not just the children, but the parents they bring the stuff home to, and the teachers who are administering it, and the communities that are discussing it. And the beginning of that reform, when you realize that your goal is to produce good citizens, when you stop and realize it, and look at this country right now, and let me just underscore one other point. All of the problems in our economy, I would argue, that are important arise from the crisis in our democracy. That our failure as citizens is entirely, what, what economic problems we suffer are due to the bad choices we've made. If we hadn't entered the Iraq war, if we'd raised the minimum wage in time, if we hadn't deregulated Wall Street, if we hadn't let money into politics, if we'd fixed our energy and healthcare systems in a timely fashion so that we led the world, we would be currently experiencing an historic era of prosperity and security, historic, literally unprecedented in the history of the world, not just in our own history. If we'd made better choices in our democracy, there'd be no sense of crisis and a great sense of celebration. And you only have to get to about a dozen or so choices and imagine all that comes out of them. So that's where the problem is. Just you start by seeing what the problem is, and then you look at what terrible citizens we are, and we realize that so many of these things, we've lost the ability even to discuss. One of the things I say when I've been, I've been out doing more speaking lately, and I say to people the, the same phrase everywhere I go, policy precedes message. First you figure out what you believe, and then how to tell people about it. And I look at the people in my own party who are always looking for the right trope, the right meme, the right metaphor, when Obama was leaving office, they said, what was your greatest mistake in every valedictory interview he did? And he would always say, I wish I'd done a better job of telling our story, which kind of means he wished we did a better job of appreciating what he'd done for us. <laughs> but it also suggests that there was a story that he could have told about Obamacare that would have made it okay for the tens of millions of self-employed and small business people for whom the costs went up and the health care actually went down and who were the nub of the opposition. You didn't need to tell a better story about it. You had to fix it. And so the point is, you can take that, national security, trade, you can pick a topic. We don't have the discussion because our people aren't demanding it and our leaders have forgotten how to provide it. And I still believe in the marketplace of ideas. And I still believe that along with education, if we can, if we can learn how to conduct civil, substantive, reasoned debate, we can fix this thing. And since we can't solve money and politics and all those other things that people list all the time first, let's go to the problem we can solve. And there are things we can do about it. So, Suzanne, part of that argument is, uh, as I hear it, and as Bill was saying to us in emails, yeah, maybe an overemphasis on, on STEM and not enough emphasis on humanities, civics, kind of understanding the system and the world we live in and the vocabulary that goes along with it. Do you buy that? I guess uh, it comes from like a basic premise of who teaches the children those things, who teaches children to be a good citizen. And, and I definitely think there's a role for schools, but I also think there's a role for families. Um, I do think that we've lost some of our other institutions. I mean, you know, in the 1950s, 40s, go back when, you know, there were other institutions that played more of a role, like churches and some of these other community-type organizations that people really don't 
belong to or attend as much anymore. And so I think you've lost some of that civil society. And so I think people are instead looking to their political parties for some of that, um, or their sort of tribes, you know, in terms of the people that they agree with, for some of that um, community feeling. When you look to politics for that community, it, it sort of changes um, the way we interact with each other. And so I do worry about civility a lot. Um, I think that we, we don't respect one another anymore, and that concerns me. I think on both sides, you see people assuming bad things about someone on the other side. So it's not just that I disagree with you. It's that I think you're a bad person and you want bad things. Um, you know, where if I think if you come to a conversation and think we both have similar goals, our goals are to make things better. We just see the pathway to making things better differently. If you assume good things about people, um, you're going to get a totally different outcome from that conversation than if you go in assuming that they're a bad person. Mm. And so, you know, when I look at President Trump, I see a symptom of something that's going on at the ground level um, in terms of if you know, human interaction versus him being the cause of this, of this uh, drama at the ground level. All right. The panelists are, are only allowed to say the word Trump three times per panelist. Trying Trump, to, Trump. Try not to Trump. say him. Oh, yeah, yeah. You just used up all of it. So, I don't know, Bilal, I, I, well, I'll react yeah. however you want. I'll, I'll try my best not to say, um, 45, I'll try my best not to say that. When I um, initially read Bill's comments and, and read your comment about leading the discussion on this, at one level, I, you know, as someone who teaches at a university, and you know, one of the things I do at the very beginning of a course I teach on American national government is I give students a version of the questions from the naturalization test. And inevitably, <laughs> inevitably, most of them fail. And, well, no, all of them fail. And they don't just fail. They <laughs> fail, right? Um, and it's pretty amazing. And I, you know, I often say to them to make them feel better about just how much they don't know about American government and about the history of the country. I say, you're in good company because most Americans would fail this test. No, they would fail this test, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the level, when we talk about the discourse, and the civility, right? I think, you know, for many Americans, I think we need to bring civics education back into our schools and to have it as a really central focus of what we do in the schools. But when I think about what's wrong with our political system, I, I think of this as being a symptom of a much larger disease, right? And so, you know, I sort of think, you know, myself when I'm at the university and I think about how 50 years ago someone who looks like me, bald head, would not be teaching at the University of Hartford. <laughs> and, I, and I tell my students, you know, this rights revolution occurred, right? And we made this tremendous progress as a nation. Educational opportunities opened up to people in ways that had never occurred in the past. In general, as a political scientist, we think of education as being something that is highly correlated with political participation. The better educated you are, the more motivated, the more you know about what's going on, and yet we've seen an erosion of participation by most Americans except for the most advantaged Americans, the most privileged Americans. So when I think about what's wrong with our political system and the challenges we face and why engagement is in such decline is that people also see 
a political system that they believe does not work for them, an economic system that does not work for them, a political system in which political leaders are more responsive to organized interest, corporate and professional and other sort of organizations that really come out of the more privileged classes of American society. And so when we think about why so many people have sort of retreated the way they've done for decades now, and I think in many ways we think about the rise of 45 and part of the reason for that, I think in many ways it is a symptom of a much larger, much more deeply rooted and much more challenging problem that we face as a nation. So Suzanne, you know, the thing that you were saying about places like churches where people would maybe meet and bond and cross-pollinate a, a little bit. Um, no, not that way. I've been thinking about that a little bit and rereading parts of, of Robert Bella's uh, Habits of the Heart, which is kind of a great uh, look at that. But an idea came in, and I'm pretty sure it's from one of Bill's college roommates, believe it or not. David Heckman, is he a college? Yeah. Okay, right. yeah. okay, but I'm giving this to Suzanne, because I think this might, be some, this might be a common ground thing. Let's see. <laughs> Universal National Service, one year, WPA, CCC, VISTA, whatever it is, uh, age 18, living wage, a way to experience, a chance to value, community and diversity. You know, the Army was one of the ways for a long time where a lot of people met each other, you know, and, and it wasn't a perfect environment maybe to get to know one another, but it brought a lot of Americans in to do something together. And, and I kind of, what do you think about this idea? Universal National Service. Nobody gets out. Everybody has to do something. So I don't love it. <laughs> that was written all over Let your face. Let me tell you why. Yeah. I think it's an interesting idea, and I think it's worth discussing. So I'm actually from Canada. So I actually took the nat naturalization test and um, did very well. Thank you. So um, <laughs> thank you. Um, so I mean, I come from a different country, and I know everyone in America thinks Canada is just part of America, but it isn't. Um, and it has very much its own political culture that's much more communitarian. And actually, one of the things that I like, probably being a more conservatively-minded person about the United States, is this um, focus on individual rights and freedoms. I don't like the idea of forcing anyone to do anything. So I, I think if, if you can encourage people in that direction, mm -hmm. I think it's a great way to go. I don't like the idea of forcing people to do it. To me, it's a more return to values thing, you know, return to some of the, the things that we used to value in terms of um, these great freedoms that America is built on and, and the promise of America. And I think this, people have become jaded about the, these ideas and these values that, that our nation was built on. And so the, I think that's a shame because I think coming as an outsider in, um, it's one of the things that I love about this country and that, you know, I grew to love. I actually uh, had an American history class when I was in high school in just outside Toronto. Um, my teacher hated America. So, I mean, I got a very <laughs> anti-American view of, of American history and, and, you know, moved here with some ideas that, that have really changed over time as I've grown to, to love a lot of the institutions and the values that that I think America still stands for. And I think if you can get back to those, to those values and figure out a way that we can talk about those things um, across you know, cultures. And I mean, I, we've lived in six states, our family. Um, my husband was in the Air Force. 
And so we've lived all over the place. And I think there's such differences, you know, from Wyoming to Connecticut. Sorry, but there's some shared values there still that we don't really talk about anymore. I thought this was my best hope of getting three votes for something. Um, So, by the way, I think one of the things we've learned this week and last 12 days really is that Canada is not part of the United States and Puerto Rico is. Um, So, will you stick up for Heckman's idea? Never. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, I like it a little more than, than, than Suzanne does. It's kind of like what you were saying, you and I were talking about term limits. There are a set of ideas in which I've been softening as, right. all, other attempts, as all other attempts have failed. But I just, can I just pick up on something Suzanne just said? And that is, yeah. I agree with a lot that you said, but I don't think people are jaded about those core traditional values. I think that they're jaded about the invocation of those values. Uh, people are jaded about a love of country that doesn't begin in the love of each of us for one another. Uh, They're jaded about invoking those values in lieu of action. And I don't want to try to turn this into an education seminar, but the democracy is the crisis. But I I just want to go back to, you know, so, so what do you do? What are the things we can do? And we can exhort people to live differently. A lot of examinations of uh, behaviors in red states where people are constantly exhorting traditional values find that there isn't all that much more traditional value being practiced in those states. I go back to what Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson believed that what was called then the common school. He said it was the principal means by which we deliver on the promise of America of, of equal opportunity under constitutional law. Jefferson said it. And then John Dewey came along, who was once a great celebrity here. I uh, was uh, said to be the most famous man in America, and he's an intellectual. And it was American pragmatism, our only homebred philosophical school. And uh, he became an education reformer. His, his concern about democracy and the marketplace of ideas led him to be an education reformer. And it was all about community schools, a phrase you may remember before the current debacle in education reform. It was about experimental education. It was about teaching civics. People always decry social promotion. I'd be for it if the people were actually socialized. <laughs> and, you know, we transmit values, E.F. Schumacher's, we, we transmit values in schools. We just need to do it consciously. And they need to be places. And in, most of, in, in the city where I grew up in, in Hartford, the North End, and basically churches and schools were the only two institutions left where people really could gather and forge community. And so... I think that, you know, we've, we've misapplied the market metaphor in education as we have in healthcare. We haven't paid enough attention to community schools, and we haven't stopped to ask what we want to go on there. All right. What so, are all the reasons so they exist? So, Obi-Wan Siku, you're my only hope now. Um, and I think, you know... Bill kind of agreed with Kind of agreed. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, just to that, to his point, though, I mean, you've, you've read, you, you know the book, The Big Sort, you know, right. where, in fact, what people are basically doing, like-minded people are congregating more and more together. And I think this idea of national service, right. one of the things, the appeals that I have, one of the ways that it appeals to me is that it, it militates against that a little right. bit. Right. And it appeals to me. I mean, one of the things I, and again, I, I refer back to my students quite a bit because that's what I do for a living, and I really enjoy teaching young people. And one of the things I'm struck by when I sit in the classroom is I look at that diversity of the classroom. The University of Hartford now is probably about 40% students of color. The classrooms are very diverse. The students are there from a range of different experiences. Some of the kids grew up poor. Some of them grew up in middle-class families. Some of them grew up in fairly wealthy families. And it doesn't follow the pattern necessarily of the black students or the Latino students who grew up in the poor families. I mean, we have a wide range 
of, of students with really great experiences. And I think bringing young people together, you know, in, you know, with the call of service in mind, I think is a great idea. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually on that page. I mean, actually, how we get there is probably a different kind of question in terms mm-hmm. of how to make it happen. But I think as, as a proposal, I, I actually like it as an idea. But I, but I do want to push back at, I think, the sort of premise of, of what we're sort of talking about, which is that somehow the problem is the people rather than the system. And I think, you know, if, if we focus entirely on the people to talk about, well, if we just learn how to talk with each other a little bit better, to be more civil, to figure out where our common ground is at, that's really difficult to do if the system is rigged, right? If the system is one in which the interest and the needs of advantage groups, more privileged people in society are the sort of the status quo of what the system works with. If certain ideas are not ever, were never on the table simply because they are not consistent with what are the interests of, you know, the Fortune 500 companies or what are the interests of, you know, the wealthy donors who are sending money to the political parties and what they're demanding for, like we're seeing right now with this push to get rid of Obamacare. This is being fueled and driven by a desire on the part of donors to Republican causes who want Obamacare eliminated. If that's driving our agenda at the national level, think about what it may be doing at the local level in places like Hartford and other sort of cities across the country. And so at the end of the day, we want people to become engaged, but we also need to figure out how to weaken the power of those who have a tight grip on the discourse that we have and the range of possibilities that we think we can explore in dealing with some of these challenges that we face as a nation. All right, so that's the end of the philosophical and more nebulous part of the evening. <laughs> and now we're going to get down to politics a little bit. Not to politics or policy, but the structure of politics. And Suzanne, one of the things you wanted to talk about is political parties. And as I started to get some feedback about tonight, particularly on social media, that came up a lot. The notion that there are only two political parties. There's only two people on stage during major political debates. Um, you have some thoughts about that. Where, where do they go? Yeah, so um, again, because I grew up in Canada, different system, parliamentary system. We had five major political parties at one point. We're down to four now in Canada. Um, so I think there are good things and bad things about this, you know, having more parties. I do worry a little bit about, you know, in some countries where they have a lot of parties, you get these very small parties that pull, um, you know, governance to the far left or the far right. I think the two-party system could work. But I think part of our problem is, is that there's been this um, flee from the party. People are fleeing the parties. They're more and more independents because they're kind of disgusted with what's going on in the parties. But I think that that leaves the parties then to people that you may not want in charge of those parties. Um, <laughs> right? So, so if only the far right... Do you have an example? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I think if only the far right or the far left are voting in primaries, that's a problem. Um, so I, almost, I think that people need to go back to the party. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to your local town committee meeting, um, but a lot of stuff happens at that local level that's really not actually that partisan. You know, it's very much like who's going to be on the vote zone, zoning board. There are a lot of boards at, like, the local level that need to be just filled. And a lot of the, the parties fill those boards. And, and our, our communities, I think, thrive when you have a lot of people in, engaged in those very local decisions. I think people need to go back to the political party. I think, 
you know, we need more people um, engaged in that, that granular level of the party. We're going to take a break right now. We're live from Watkinson School with a terrific panel now. We'll be back. We're going to go do something of a lightning round. So I just, uh, there are some things that just come up over and over and over again. Uh, I just want to get you maybe, all, all of you to a little bit maybe more quickly react to them. Suzanne, let's start with the idea of term limits. Bill mentioned that. This is something I was really opposed to as a younger person. The older I get, the better an idea it seems. Term limits. Look at that face. You don't like term limits either. I feel so torn about term limits. There's a part of me that really likes them and then a part of me that ultimately I think it's up to voters because there are some people who just need to get out. But I, 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 I think ultimately it's up to voters to decide to kick people out or not. So but but Bilal, if the, system's, if the system's rigged, incumbents have a huge advantage. Look, if there's one thing, and only one thing, that George, Will, and I agree on, it's term <laughs> limits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Was that lightning fast enough for you, you? You can say one more sentence. Okay, all right. <laughs> Throw the bums out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Force them out. How about that? All right. That okay. was very succinct. So you're somewhere a little bit in the middle here. Right? I'm, I fought this idea all my life, and I believe that the democratic process, I believe in democracy more than I believe in anything. And so I do agree the idea that it's the people's uh, prerogative. But I also think what I said before, that this system has just died so much. It's just died so badly. And all these people are doing is angling for position. I have a proposal, but when all your cars run this time, I know they all want to stay forever. Tell them all, listen, you can stay as long as you want. I just want one promise. When you're done, come home. If you really like us as much as you say, come back and be with us. Don't go lobby for some corporation in Washington. Come home. You agree to come home at the end, and I'll vote for you now. And no matter how much I like you, if you won't, I won't. I just want to say, Joe Lieberman is staying at your house. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, I just, but, but on the whole, I'm ready to cave to it. Yeah. I've, re, I've resisted this all my life, and I finally... In the spirit of I'll try anything now, uh, I'd go along. We operate on this premise that the person in office is someone we love and we don't want to see them go. I think there's an incredible amount of talent out here in society, and there are lots of people who can step up to the plate and do these jobs. And somehow this notion Amen. that some lawmaker is indispensable, we just cannot survive without them, I think is just nonsense. One of my favorite semi-crazy suggestions... Somebody, somebody in social media suggested making it more like jury duty. It's like, you have to be a congressman to get in there. Um, I didn't hate that idea. I don't want to keep making you go first, Suzanne, but you're just sort of up in the rotation right now. Right. Electoral college. I, I like the electoral college. Why? I like the smaller units of government. I think there are such differences between Connecticut and Wyoming that if you had a national popular vote, um, we would lose some of that local flavor. And I think that states still matter. And in fact, I would like to see, you know, sort of a devolution out of Washington and, and give more power back to the states. And I think that with a national popular vote, you lose that. Bilal, you want to go next on that one? Not only would I get rid of the Electoral College, I'd get rid of the Senate as well. I think the... <laughs> I think the idea that states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and these others, Rhode Island, even Connecticut, you know, that you can fit in the, in the seven boroughs of New York City, have, you know, 14, 16 senators, um, is just a vestige of a slaveocracy 
in which Southern slave owners wanted to make sure slavery would not end it, and they created this system, and we are stuck with it, and we just really have a dysfunctional political system in Washington because we have people from tiny states that are demographically undiverse, and they are the source of some of these tensions that we have in our political system. I thought it was going to be really fun... I thought it was going to be really fun at the end of the night when I brought out Chuck Schumer from backstage, and now I'm just thinking, <laughs> the way things are going, I yeah, think I just he, might just... He left. Yeah. All right, Bill, you got uh, electrical, electrical College. Uh, I hate it. And, uh, you know, just... When you, interesting, that I, I don't always resort to citing the founders, and it's really hard to cite the founders in Electrical College because almost nobody even said a word about it for the same reason they didn't say who were the three-fifths of people they wanted to leave all that stuff out, but Bilal is exactly correct. It, it wasn't there to protect small states against big states. It was there to protect slave states against non-slave states. End of story. And the one place, there's one Federalist paper in which Hamilton uh, defends the Electoral College. It's mentioned once that I could find, looking hard. And in that, he said that, uh, that it existed primarily to make sure that in the event Think about this in terms of what we've all just been through. <laughs> in the event that, for instance, a foreign power would seek to subvert a national election, the Electoral College would meet and do the one thing that no Electoral College has ever done, which is get collegial. Okay? There's nothing collegial about the Electoral College. And they would meet, root out the malfeasance and treason, and make sure that the election were overturned. So we now know that the only thing anyone ever claimed that it would do, it can't do, because it just happened. It just <laughs> happened. We have so many things from the filibuster to gerrymandering to the electoral college to the Senate rule. Everything is rigged. The reason we trail the world now in healthcare and energy and infrastructure and the reason we can't get gun control, all these are things that 70% of the people agree on that massive majorities of Americans are agreed on, and that place can't move. The biggest problem is that money. The biggest problem, this isn't left versus right, this is top versus bottom, and the people at the top own this thing, and we gotta take it back. But, uh, at the same time, the institutional stuff that I was talking about, all of these things are also part of what cripples our ability to move forward. We are, we are a stagnant, stagnant nation right now. Every major system is broken. And so the Electoral College, just, you know, let the people rule, for God's oh, sake. All right. So onward. Here we go. So I'm going to make Suzanne go first again. You want to go last this time? I don't know. Okay. So, um, but this is going to be more open-ended. So one of the things people are generally dissatisfied with is the way campaigns go and, and the way elections go. And everybody has all kinds of different ideas, not just about the Electoral College. Most of the ideas that people have are probably unconstitutional. But, for example, I mean, but they're good ideas. For example, one thing that was suggested was, you know, there are, Great Britain is better at kind of limiting the campaign season, you know, the 90 days of political ads instead of 9,000 days of political ads. There's uh, people who I think rightly suggest that the way the primaries go right now is 
weird and wrong that it puts too much emphasis on New Hampshire and Iowa. John Dankowski has what he calls the Super Bowl system, which basically, you know, every, every cycle it would rotate around, you know, and maybe, you know, different people would sort of get to start things out. So pick whatever you want or, or something else. Is there something that you would change just about how political campaigns are now? I would go back to you know the fact that I think more people need to be involved at that primary level. And let me defend New Hampshire for a moment because I lived there and I actually covered, um, I worked for a newspaper there in 2008 when it was uh, McCain versus Obama and I was there for the primary. So it was just fascinating being on the ground there watching all these campaigns, um, you know, fight and work. And the level of engagement there was phenomenal. And it really was like this very, the, the retail politicking that the candidates had to do, you could tell a lot of them really didn't like it. Obama was excellent at it. Romney, you could tell he really wasn't good at it. McCain was better at it than Romney. But that's what the electoral college forces people to do. If you have a national, you're, you're flying in and doing rallies. You're not retail politicking. And I think getting face-to-face -face with voters is still a critical thing, even for our president. And so that is what I liked. I mean, if we want to switch up which state goes first, I think that's actually a better idea than get, getting rid of it altogether. But I like the idea of starting something from a small place and, and then having to build out from there. I completely agree. Oh. <laughs> I completely agree. And... Uh, uh, and not only do I admire the courage and grace with which you've handled the three of us, uh, but I, I think that's three? really true. And that piece, <laughs> yeah, you can easily, yeah. Exactly. Uh, that um, the, the idea about starting small, I think that's so important. I would always start with a smaller state. And I do believe in retail, and I do believe that there's something, it's, you know, Saul Alinsky, anybody ever read any Saul Alinsky? But it's, something happens when people meet face to face that can't happen on the internet, it can't happen any other way. You know, he used to say you had to get people not just at the screen door but into the kitchen. And you had to sit with them. You had to bond. There's something we learn from each other. Uh, when, you know, there's something that I know about people I've met tonight and some of you know about me that you never would have known because we were in this room. It's not a radio show. It's not TV. We were in this room together. And something different happens. And I think that's really important. By the way, parenthetically, it's one of the reasons I don't want to get rid of the caucuses. The establishment wing of my party and most mass media is on a tirade now to get rid of the caucuses because they say they're unfair to working people because they can't get there late. But real, and the, the other truth about the caucus system is that it's the hardest part of the democracy to buy. It's the hardest part to buy. And the people who come to it are people who've been face to face. And they're face to face that night. And something important happens uh, there. And uh, we're on the verge, in, on my party, of giving it up. And I think it's, uh, I think all the reasons people give aren't their real reasons. And I think we'll pay a price for it. But don't you have to, like, go stand against the wall with, you know... Depends on the caucus. They have yeah. all kinds of different little things they do. Yeah, they <laughs> pin the tail on the donkey. I'm out of, you know, like really everybody's got their somehow. own rules. But they have, to, but, but but all the great. It's too close to dodgeball. That's my feeling, you know. It's a, you know. <laughs> and yet, if and yet, if it were dodgeball, you'd be for it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. So let me say, I, I partially agree with you. I agree with the part about retail politics and the importance of that. I don't think that the electoral college is somehow held to virtue because of we started in New Hampshire. In fact, I think the fact that we end up doing the actual campaign 
with candidates focusing on about 11 states, if that many, and devoting most of their money and resources to those states and not retailing in other places is because of our electoral college. Yep. Our electoral college distorts the actual way in which our political campaigns are ran. And so in that sense, you know, we start in New Hampshire. Now, I, I would start small. I'd start in Washington, D.C., maybe, a more diverse state. A more, well, excuse me, yeah, not yeah. a state. Sure. Freudian slip. Should be yeah. one. <laughs> but I'd start in Washington, D.C., a more diverse place. I think there's some real questions about why we continue to start in New Hampshire and how that actually lays the roadmap for who the candidates will be, who the media will focus on, who the horse race will grab and latch on to. And so I don't have a problem with starting small. I have a problem with starting in New Hampshire. I don't have a problem with retail politics. I think we need more of that. But I do have a problem with the way in which the Electoral College actually promotes an election system in which much of the focus and the dollars go into a small set of states that are swing states and critical states and the rest of the country doesn't get an opportunity to see presidential candidates. And so, for example, Connecticut, we saw them when they needed to raise money, but not much beyond that. That's the, the thing that you were talking about, Suzanne, the excitement in New Hampshire is one we have not felt here in Connecticut for a variety of different reasons. Okay, I hate to take another break because it's getting so interesting, but we're live from Watkinson School. We'll be right back after this. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Thank you very much to the whole crew at Event Resources and the staff of Watkinson School. The part of Bill Curry was played by, well, Bill Curry. On tomorrow's show, just how many ways can our world end? A look at Armageddon. And now, back to Watkinson. Now I think we can do questions. Is it just going to be you? Do you have an assistant? You have an assistant, okay. My recollection when I was young, and it's a long time ago, uh, the conventions um, in the 60s and maybe a little earlier and a little later, nobody knew who the president was going to be or the vice president until the couple of nights, the last couple of nights of the conventions. Everything was done in the convention. They voted. The, I remember the, the delegates voted, and uh, if there was a tie or if, it was, if they didn't get the right number of votes, they'd have another revote. They dropped somebody, another one. You know, then they'd only if they started with three. They'd end up with two until they finally got a majority. And then that, that was the president. And then you found out who the vice president was after that. What happened? How do we get to where we are now? I, I, I just, there's a mental lapse. I don't remember how we got from then to what we have now. Bill can't wait to do this one. <laughs> no, we Take it. Yeah. <laughs> so since 1950, there have been only three conventions in both parties altogether in which people didn't know the result for sure going in. There was Taft and Eisenhower, and even then they sort of knew. John Kennedy in 1960, it, w it wasn't until Wyoming cast their ballots that he took the nomination by a handful of votes. And then, uh, and then Ford and Reagan in 1976, when Reagan was gonna pick up Richard Schweiker, a liberal Republican from Pennsylvania, they had those then. And, uh, and no one knew that Ford was gonna be renominated until, until they really cast the votes. Other than that, throughout our lives, um, uh, every, every other convention in both parties, people knew going in who the nominee was going to be. 
And the reason for that is that beginning in 1952, we started having primaries, and those expanded every four years. And the more primaries you have, the more bound delegates you have, the more you know the result going in. And so it's really a trade-off for more democracy. Now, again, my party killed the superdelegates. What a preposterous <laughs> anti-democratic innovation. They did everything, you know, both parties at the top do everything they can to rig the system. It's not just Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, they do everything they can to rig the system. But the bottom line of there being open caucuses and open primaries, both parties, primaries and caucuses, should be open to unaffiliated voters, by the way, uh, across the board, um, to make up for some of the extremism that, that Suzanne was talking about, I think. But anyway, that's the, it's, it's been mostly because of the antidote of democracy at the grassroots level that the conventions have become just really kind of entertainment. Although, Suzanne, one of the things that happened this time around, I'm so glad you mentioned the super delegates, because in 2016, as things began to take shape and it became, became more and more obvious what was happening, the uh, Democrats that I knew, who particularly the sort of Sanders Democrats, and but, but Democrats who were kind of unhappy with the way things were unfolding, they would go, well, we ought to be more like the Republicans. It's just so wide open there. And they got 16 people, you know, and it's just like everybody's having a big argument and a great time. And then the Republicans, as it became clear what was going to happen with them, would be like on the phone to me going, we should get those superdelegates. Like, we need like a lot yeah, of those. Those yeah. superdelegates yeah. are great. Let's get some of them, you know? If we had so, superdelegates, we'd probably have Jeff exactly Bush. Right instead yeah. of uh, Donald Trump. So I like the return to democracy, but I think the, the problem with the convention system was it was all backroom deals, right? I mean, that's the party leaders really decided, and now you've got more the people decide, and um, you know the people really threw a wrench in the system this year with, mm. with their votes. Do you want to say anything about conventions? It's not a lot to say that hasn't already been said. I think the thing was interesting to me that I liked about some of the democratization that took place in the early 70s was, you know, the push to make sure that the, the delegate group would be more diverse. And so, you know, some of that emphasis, I think, opened up this process in ways that helped to engage people in the political system beyond sort of the party sort of core of people. But, you know, if you see a party that looks more reflective of, of you, uh, as a voter, I think it helps you potentially become more engaged and more interested. And so from that standpoint, I like it. But, you know, certainly the superdelegates and some of the other changes have sort of, you know, opened up. I mean, the, what is it, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so I think the party system and, you know, the party convention system is a reflection of that and some of the challenges yeah, I, I will say one very Curry-like thing I did in the last cycle. I actually read the rules of each party in the state of Connecticut about delegate selection to conventions because it, it started to get interesting at a certain point. It looked like there might be floor fights or whatever. And and I, I don't want to go into details, but the parties very much revealed themselves. And all It was their, a great year to do that. Yeah, it really was a good year. I mean, I, I didn't feel like I was wasting my time. Yeah, and so, like, the Democrats have all these, like, really complicated, you know, things that involve making sure absolutely every kind of person in the world is represented. And, you know, Republicans have, like, this guy named Charlie Berenson in, in Nor Norwalk. He has to be a delegate. It's like there's a rule that Charlie has to. You know. All right, so, yeah, where are we going next? I just want to just say that I'm a teacher in this city, and, and I want to ask from the three of you, if you could think about the one thing as a U.S. history teacher whose jobs have been complicated more and more. Uh, I mean, I teach in a, an area of the city where the unemployment rate is 78%. It's been more and more of a um, being their counselor than being their teacher these days. But if there was one thing that you would like me to 
give to my students to become better citizens. I'm curious as to what it would be, and I would like it to not be the rhetoric of values. I am a teacher that believes that the values certainly come in my classroom, but I do not want to return to our values of women who had no power and blacks that were sprayed down with fire hoses and African um, uh, Native Americans who were massacred. Those are not the values that I would like to return to. So I would prefer for us to stick, you know, to stay away from that. But if there's one thing that you would like me to pass on from even this panel, because I will talk about this panel right. tomorrow, what oh, would it be? Right. So in this case, this isn't actually something that you would teach in terms of a lesson plan, right? I do a course at the University of Africa called How to Change the World. And one of the things that I have my students do is projects. I give them the opportunity to come up with the idea about what they want to do that's meaningful, political, socially engaged. And they struggle working with each other, but they eventually learn how to. They actually have to do research to deepen their understanding about the issue that they're interested in. They come up with creative projects that they work with. And so I'm saying this to say, if you want them to do something, give them something to do, like that, right? Yeah. And that's the best way to teach them about the importance of giving back to society, being participatory, and engaged. And I think that's the best strategy to go with. You know, when I think of the values Sorry, I will talk brief, <laughs> briefly about values. When I think about the values that I want my children to learn in the classroom, you know, some of those things that are in our foundational documents like free speech and, and freedom of thought and individual rights and liberties that I think we've gotten away from in some ways are things that I think we should be teaching. And, and unfortunately, when those things were put in those foundational documents, they didn't mean for all people. They didn't mean for women. They didn't mean for black people. They didn't mean for you know, a lot of different populations. And, and how do we bring those things to as many people as possible? Because we want this to still be a land of opportunity for all people. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, I work in public policy at the state level, and I think we focus so much on rhetoric and not enough on solutions. Like, when you start talking about solutions, people get a lot less partisan, right? Like, what's really going to solve this problem that we're having with whatever it is? You know, oh, all of a sudden it becomes about what's pragmatic, what actually works, what could we do? Um, you know, so focusing on on what's the solution to the problem that we're having. And I think when you focus on solutions, people feel more hopeful. Like, I think part of our problem right now is people feel very not hopeful. Um, and I think there, there's a lot of hope. Things can still be done. Good things do happen. Um, I worked this, session, this last session on criminal justice reform with um, Governor Malloy. There are good, good things that do happen. And I think we don't talk a lot about those good things because we focus a lot on the, the bad things. But I think there are solutions. And just trying to find them and then finding a coalition of people who are willing to push them forward, we're losing that ability, I think, in our democracy in a lot of ways. You know, I, I, we, we teach a lot of bad values. Uh, I don't want to back off the values question. I do want to admit that you that the best way to teach values, though, is just by modeling them. It was such a John Dewey moment describing what you do in your classroom. I have a beloved friend, Anna Sanko, who teaches in the New Haven schools mostly. She should be in Hartford more. But she, starting in second grade, she teaches STEM skills by having kids design stuff they need in their own communities. 
and they actually started to design at seven years old and working these projects and uh and integrating the things that they're learning into into how to and how to fix the world they live in that's john dewey 100 percent the thing about community schools and modeling and just talking to you and thank you for what you do is that one of the things they say one of the alternatives to the so-called reform movements we've had is that every child deserves a relationship with an adult who really cares about them who really knows them who knows what they're supposed to be doing and what they're probably doing if they're doing something other than what they're supposed to be doing and what their loves and fears are can work with them and one of the worst things about all the corporate reforms that have been, have been established is that even though every person in this room can remember being saved by a teacher, we all got saved by teachers we loved. We, that's where all our best learning happened. That's where all our best growth happened. And we act as if that relationship isn't the central dynamic of all teaching when it is. And so we create a system which uh, destroys it. And so trying to strengthen, telling you this is, seems to be besides the point, but trying to strengthen that relationship and in terms of content, I would just go along with the law. I just all important social progress in this country has come about because of grassroots, independent, politically nonpartisan, by the way, movements, the women's movement, the peace movement, the civil rights movement, the agrarian populace, the progressives, not one of them mortgaged to a party and every one of them grassroots, not one of them with a budget. I was a honored to be the political director of the nuclear freeze movement in the 1980s and we didn't have a nickel but we changed that debate in a very short period of time and one of the things that has happened is that at some point the left went to work for the democratic party and both institutions suffered as a result how to build grassroots independent social change movements in america it's the only thing that ever brought progress and okay. so let's get it back. So our revels are ended. I want to thank Fiduciary Investment Advisors. And I just want to say one last thing, which is when you, I've lived in this community for a really long time and I've been doing radio for a really long time, which means I'm on an endless search for people who can, who can speak eloquently and speak with heart and can think on their feet. And so when I, you know, when I first started working with, with Bilal Siku, I mean, Curry I'm stuck with for life. That's like a different thing. But um, uh, when I, I photographs, yeah, when I uh, first met, uh, Bilal, when I first met uh, Suzanne, it was like right away I thought, oh. So when I was putting this panel together, I thought, oh, I can have three people. And I thought, well, I'd like to have Bilal Siku and Suzanne Bates and Bill Curry. And that's like cream, you know? That was a super group that had three people in it. I don't know, like you didn't remember. Okay. So um, I thought, I'm done. <laughs> and, and I was right. So how about a big hand for this panel? Thank you for coming out tonight.